Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's episode of the Flagship Lions of Liberty podcast is brought to you by our newest sponsors at the North Spokane Hemp Company. If you have aches, if you have pains, if you have inflammation, if you have insomnia, you may want to try CBD. And there is no better place to get you some CBD than from our friends at the North Spokane Hemp Company. And now for a very limited time, Lions of Liberty listeners can get 25%. That's right, 25% off your order All you have to do is go over to NorthSpokaneCBD.com, use discount code LIONS, and that's right. You get 25% off your order. This deal will last only through the month of February. So go ahead, check it out. Try some CBD. They got everything you need. They got flour. They got tinctures. They got gummies. Give them a shot over at NorthSpokaneCBD.com, and don't forget to use discount code LIONS. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host. My guest today is an independent researcher and writer. Her website is MereLiberty.com. Her podcast is Dare to Think, and she has a very unique take on the abortion issue. Yes, the abortion issue is back once again. And she recently even participated in a debate on this issue against the great Walter Block at the Soho Forum. Very, very pleased to welcome, for the first time, Miss Carrie Baldwin. Carrie, are you ready to roar? Yes, I am, Mark. Awesome, Carrie. Well, you've already been through the ringer, um, but having to debate against Walter Block, so that's, I I can guarantee, well, not guarantee, I I don't think this will be quite as challenging as having to debate Walter Block, but we're going to dive into this issue on abortion. Like I said, you do have a really unique take on this, uh, to the point that even Professor Block complimented you saying, you know, you should write this up. Uh, I like to address it in in sort of a a longer format, a written format, which is uh, really uh, quite a compliment, I think, from from Walter Block when he says he hasn't really heard this argument before. Yes, yes, absolutely. Great, but we'll get to that in a minute. But first, since it's your first time here with us, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So can you just lead us on your journey a little bit and tell us how you first, uh, what first brought you down this path towards the ideas of liberty? Yeah, well, um, like most people in the liberty movement, uh, I came to libertarianism through Ron Paul. Uh, 2008 uh, was really my first opportunity to get to vote in a Republican primary or any primary for that matter. I was what you might consider a you know, your, your typical red-blooded Republican, totally interventionist foreign policy and, and some such. Um, and at any rate, I remember thinking to myself, um, gee, how do people actually vote for, for these guys in the primary? And so I got this crazy idea that maybe I should look at the Constitution to see what the role of the president is and see which, one, which, which candidate lined up. And lo and behold, that was that was Ron, Ron Paul. Um, so Ron Paul brought me into into the movement, um, and uh, ever since then, uh, I've just really been interested in the theory. I've always been interested in in philosophy and science and things like that. Um, and you know, as far as my position on abortion is concerned, I used to be. Uh, your very typical uh, outspoken pro-lifer um, literally memorized the book on pro-life arguments. There is one in case you didn't know. Uh, um, and I had that memorized. And it wasn't until I started listening to the other side and, and um, hearing the reasons why women seek abortion that I sort of stopped uh, my my rhetoric start, stopped talking about it because it suddenly became confusing and ambiguous and and muddy and gray and I think that's where a lot of um, a lot of people went to and so I didn't actually start talking about it again until I had finally gotten a grasp on Austrian economic theory and more of libertarian theory and then I sort of had this aha moment and uh, it wasn't until a new anti-abortion group who 
wanted to really hammer home the uh, the idea that abortion is murder. It wasn't until they came out that I finally decided to break my silence and, and start talking about it. All right. Well, since you already teed it up for me, why don't we just dive into <laughs> that a little bit? Um, what, what, can you maybe just address what, what the actual aha moment was that you had? Like, what was the actual thing that made you say, okay, I, I have to really look into this and, and think about this in a different way? Yeah, well, um, the aha moment, I think, came uh, once I got out. So I was married for 12 years, and um, that was an abusive marriage. And we also lived through poverty most of that time. And so the aha moment came after I had gotten out of that marriage and and learning how, uh, or learning just the psychological dynamics of um, of bad relationships and abuse and poverty and all these connections. And then also seeing how uh, the demand for abortion was, was more economic rather than, um, you know, driven by some sort of uh, self-loathing that, that women might have. Um, and so that sort of became clearer to me because I had, I had lived through what so many women who are trying to avoid those things are going through um, when they seek abortion. And so I felt like I had gotten another, I I had gotten another perspective on the topic that I think that the pro-life side is missing. And especially with moral, you know, the moral outrage that, that exists, there's lots of people on the pro-life side that just don't want to hear the reasons why women seek abortion. And I kind of look at those as, um, market indicators now, rather than just, you know, bad reasons for justifying murder. So would you say that, I mean, I I think maybe on paper, you might have had the conditions for someone that would be likely to have an abortion. Like, you know, you said you were, you know, in poverty and not in a great relationship. Um, So, I mean, I I don't want to get too personal, more personal than you want, but like, what what were the reasons that went through your head at that time of why you decided not to do that? Or was that even something that crossed your mind at the time? Well, you know, there's different forms of abuse, and, and usually the the abuse that we think of is physical abuse. Um, mine was psychological and emotional, and um, that is, in in many cases, is much worse than physical abuse because it it lasts a lot longer. It takes a lot longer to realize that it exists. Um, one thing that uh, that I've noticed from more conservative people is that. There's this idea that psychological or emotional abuse isn't real. And, um, you know, there, I think one thing that people don't realize is that the pain of psychological and emotional abuse actually takes the same neurological pathways in the brain that physical abuse does. And so it does actually cause physical pain. Uh, you just can't, you can't see it. Um, you know, there's no signs um, uh, on the body that, that indicate it. Um, so at any rate, being, being able to understand sort of the psychological, emotional state that um, I imagine women are in when they go seek an abortion. I mean, we, and we can look at the reasons why women seek abortion. And the top two reasons are uh, broadly uh, bad relationships and, and poverty. Uh, um, and, you know, whether that's they don't have enough money or they have too many kids already or, Uh, you know, they're trying to build a career for themselves or seek education, you know, all of those things are trying to avoid a situation of of poverty and not being able to afford all the all the mouths you feed and and so forth. So um, I've sort of, you know, lumped a lot of those reasons together. And so the top two reasons that I that I see are poverty and bad relationships. And um, so at any rate, it was just being able to to see that that side of things and be able to say, okay, I, I understand the mindset that a lot of these women are in. And that doesn't justify abortion, but there does need to be an actual solution to to this problem. Let's dive a little bit more into I guess your what your your current stance is on abortion, just just so that's very clear to everybody um, from the libertarian perspective, the kind of the point that you've arrived at from here, and then we can kind of dive into some of your criticisms of the other views. Sure. So um, I am pro-life in all cases, and I would say um, my position is definitely libertarian as opposed to conservative, and we can get into those differences if you want. But um so basically, I don't believe that abortion is justified in any situation, including rape. 
Uh, um, that's the one that's going to get really interesting because I think that's 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 a one case where even many pro-life people will say, well, of course, uh, you know, right. except in the case of rape. So I, I think we'll dive into that in a minute. But go yeah, ahead. so um, so I don't think it's justified in the case of rape um, or in in any other situation. However, so this is the big difference between m- me um, and and other pro-lifers is uh, I believe that in so. One of my first criticisms coming out as, uh, you know, with my, with these new ideas is to ask the pro-life, the conservative pro-life movement, what is the goal in uh, criminalizing abortion? Is it to save fetal lives or is it to prosecute women? Because those are two different things. And as libertarians, we've, we've seen how, uh, how those can be two different things. Uh, and I think that the drug war is a, is a great example. So my goal is to save fetal lives and not necessarily prosecute women. Although, you know, once we get to a situation where we can le- where, where it can be legally prohibited, obviously justice needs to be served. Uh, but we're not in that situation right now. We're in a situation where the culture accepts that, um, that abortion is okay in certain circumstances. We, our culture doesn't actually... Um, even know generally that that's a human life um, in the womb. There are d- debates about personhood and that sort of thing. And so what I what I see is that we need to have a paradigm shift. And um, I've studied some of the philosophy on paradigm shifts. Um, uh, oh, I forget his first name, but his last name is Kuhn, um, who who's done work on discussing and explaining how paradigm shifts work. And I use two examples to explain how 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 these work. So if you look at the topic of gay marriage, gay marriage uh, used to be a big issue in this country. And there are certainly people who still have strong opinions about it. Um, But it's no longer a political issue. You don't have candidates campaigning on it. And that's basically since the Supreme Court made its, made its, uh, its ruling. And so lots of people like to say, well, the law obviously changed you know, changed the the behavior. And, and so what we need to do is we need to pass a law making abortion illegal, and then that will change, uh, change our behavior and our attitude towards that. But if you actually look at the attitudes towards gay marriage before the Supreme Court case, um, those attitudes were already changing. People had already persuaded um, at least 51%, let's say, of Americans that gay marriage is either okay, or it's not worth fighting about. Mm -hmm. And so by the time the Supreme Court ruled, they were just bringing the law into conformity with what the culture already uh, had accepted as true. Um, Whereas you take something like, like racism, where and and forced desegregation, uh, we're still struggling with, um, you know, segregated parts of the South. We're still struggling with racism. We actually have this weird situation right now where people are trying to, um, to segregate again, segregate themselves. Uh, you do have situations of systemic racism. None of that got, got changed just because we uh, passed a law that said, okay, now nobody's going to be racist anymore. You can't act like it. Right. Point being, for for a law to really be effective, really with any moral issue like this, uh, the the population, the ideas of the population, really do have to change. Otherwise, you're just going to be, it's just not going to work. It's, it's right. Gonna be, it's going to lead to just more contention and more, you know, what have you. Yeah, and and really, when you know, you're not dealing with, uh, even though I consider abortion murder, this isn't. Um, this isn't a situation like any other murder. I mean, any other murder. Uh, it's it's out in the open. It's out in public. It's um, it's something that can be found out. With abortion, it can't always be found out, and in many cases, looks just like a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's it's a very internal, private um, sort of crime, um, and that creates a problem in and of itself. Either we have to hold miscarriages as suspicious, which the Alabama law that, that passed this year does allow for that. And that's kind of scary. We can jump into that at some point, you know, or we have to accept that really what needs to happen is we need to be able to um, have a cultural situation where that woman feels like, yes, she can actually 
uh, carry this baby even to term and give it up and give it up for adoption or to viability, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, she has to feel like she can do that. And the only way that she's going to do that is if she's supported. I think maybe now we can take a look at uh, the rape issue. Because th- again, that's something that a lot of people are, are even people that largely might agree with the, the pro-life position um, are, are still going to say, well, I don't know. I, I, the ra- When something is a rape, clearly they should be allowed to you know have the abortion because it was against the consent of the woman. And you kind of look at that in a diff- different way. Um, you agree, of course, that it is against the consent of the woman. But I guess you disagree on sort of like how, how it should be seen from that point on and who should be looked at as, as the criminal in that situation. Uh, I think something Professor Bloch brings up in the debate is that um, this idea, which gets kind of ties in here to the same concept of the idea of the fetus as a trespasser, uh, simply meaning that the, the woman doesn't want the fetus in there. Therefore, by by definition of that it is a trespasser. Um, so I'll, I'll let you take it any way you want there. If you want to address the, the trespasser issue first, or just, just how you view this, this case of rape overall, even, even though it is of course the, the rarest, um, incidents, it's, it's not like a common reason people, um, give abortion. It does speak to the moral issue of it also. I think it is important to look at. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what, what Walter and I are both trying to do is create a, uh, a consistent principle. And so, in order for that to be consistent, it has to be consistent between rape and cases of volitional intercourse. Because if abortion in the case of volitional intercourse is is murder, um, then abortion in the case of rape also has to be murder in order for it to be consistent. And, um, you know, the our, our tendency to say, Yes, we should have we should allow abortion in the case of rape. Our tendency to say that comes from a very emotional state. It's it's we understand intuitively that rape is an incredibly violent crime. Uh, women have intuitively known that it is not merely about sex, even consensual or non-consensual sex. Uh, um, we know that intuitively, but we don't know exactly why. Um, but I do think that when we say abortion should be allowed in the case of rape. It's, it's from a, a state of feeling helpless for, uh, for this, the state of that woman, because she's just been through the ringer. Right. And, and now she's, and now she's carrying a baby that she had no part in creating and it's putting an obligation on her. And, you know, that's a hard place to be. And so, you know, one of the things that I did in preparing for the debate was to try and find a definition of, of rape. And there really isn't a good one. Uh, the legal definition is, is essentially non-consensual sex. But if you look at rape cases, they have to tack on all of these other charges um, like sexual assault, sexual harassment, and, and uh, a number of other things in order to try and, and get at the depth of that crime. And so, and why is that? Why is why is the just the charge of rape often not enough, enough in these cases? That's a good question. I mean, it's 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 really strange the way we think about rape. And Walter's illustration from the debate was 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 really good for painting this. And I kind of wish I had said this in the in the debate. But we think of rape as this passing moment. We think of of rape as sort of being this thing that that you know it it happened. And we can't really do anything about it. And so what are we going to do to pick up the pieces? So uh, Walter gave this illustration of having this, this baby making ray gun that he shoots into the audience. And um, I, I do love Walter's uh, hypotheticals. Uh, yes, sometimes. he's got some great, some <laughs> great hypotheticals. Ray gun that he sprays the audience with and now they're yeah. all pregnant. <laughs> um, and so, you know, part of my argument is pointing out that um, focusing on abortion as a remedy for rape has actually diminished the crime of rape. It causes us to focus on the fetus and allows the rapist to slip out the back door. And um, so Walter's illustration, Wal- Walter's analogy of that baby making ray gun was actually perfect, and I missed an opportunity. But you know, so he says, you know, if I if I shoot this this ray gun into the audience and everybody becomes pregnant, then you know you don't that he was saying that that's you know a trespass by the fetus um and that nobody in that audience should have to carry that that baby to term and but if if we had changed the analogy a little bit 
and said, okay, instead of a baby making ray gun, we put in, in Walter's hands, he has a Glock, right? And he's shooting actual bu- bullets into the audience. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the nature of the bullets in the bodies. We're talking about the shooter, right? So in any other crime, we're talking about the criminal who actually perpetrated the crime. Right. When it comes to rape, we're talking about the fetus and the rapist slips out the back door. So um, what part of my argument is, is absolutizing both fetal rights so that we can absolutize women's rights and actually get the situation of rape and sexual assault finally figured out. I mean, we haven't, we don't even have a framework for understanding domestic abuse. We still have states today who, um, who allow marriage to be used as a defense against rape. So, I mean, you can go online and find articles about this right now where women will uh, accuse and charge their husbands of raping them and the courts will say, sorry, rape can't happen. This is a marriage. And so that's no defense. That's, you know, that's, that's not actually bringing justice to, to the situation. Uh, um, so part of why I'm saying no abortion in the case of rape is because it actually forces us to deal with the property ownership of the woman, what she actually has a right to in terms of her own body. And that actually allows us to build a framework for things like rape and sexual assault and domestic abuse. Hey, gang, I got to take a quick time out from this interview to tell you a little bit more about our brand new sponsors at the North Spokane Hemp Company. There are so many great things about CBD and this particular brand, and my challenge is to tell you all about it in the next minute or so. So here we go. By now, many of you have heard of the amazing benefits of CBD. It is derived from a different part of the cannabis plant so that it does not get you high. It does not impair you in any way. Uh, It doesn't make you dive into the ice cream late at night, but it does provide amazing benefits benefits dealing with issues like pain relief from sore muscles and joints, inflammation, insomnia, and so much more. But there are a few things that make North Spokane CBD super special. First, they are 100% organic and procured directly from the farms. Uh, They are third-party tested, so you know you're getting high-quality product. And they also provide CBD in so many different forms, whether you prefer to smoke it using flour, uh, whether you prefer tinctures, whether you prefer to eat some gummies. No matter what your preference is for consuming CBD, North Spokane will have the products that you need. And if that's not enough, the company is owned by a libertarian. So you get to support a libertarian cause and support your favorite libertarian podcast. And to celebrate this new partnership, we are offering 25% off for the entire month of February. So all you got to do is head on over to NorthSpokaneCBD.com and get that 25% off by using discount code LIONS at checkout. Bouncing around a little bit, but but it's, it's all tied in, of course. How, so how would you address, based on that, the the sort of the, the pro-choice argument of just simply body ownership? Uh, just the simple fact that for even whatever the reason, whether it was consensual sex, whether it was rape, whether it was a, a, a Walter Block ray gun, if that the woman does not want this fetus in her body, um, you know, how do you kind of line that up with the views of libertarianism with, with body ownership? Because in that case, the woman has owns her body, has something else in there that she, that she does not want. How do you sort of... You know, how do, you, how do you tie that all together? All right. So one thing that I pointed out was that um, if if we acknowledge what the fetus is, which is a rights-bearing cell phoner, I don't argue for personhood, by the way. That's a completely different discussion. Um, but the fetus is a rights-bearing cell phoner. If we acknowledge that, then what pregnancy is, or conception specifically, is the process by which a new cell phoner is produced. And so a woman definitely owns her body. Uh, Part of a woman's self-ownership is owning the means of producing new self-owners. So now we're talking in economic terms. And any owner of the means of production um, has, uh, they have rights over over their property um, and they have some responsibility over their property. Um, But human reproduction is is the only uh, produces the only product of human action to actually come equipped with its own rights. So we can't just simply say she uh, she owns her body, she gets to do whatever she wants with it, because then we have this this uh, situation of um, an imbalance of of power. Uh, um, you know, basically, fetuses exist at the the sufferances of of their mo- mothers, the lords of the earth, so to speak. 
Um, and that's no situation at, at all to be in. Our rights are then based on the uh, goodwill and altruism of our mothers. And but libertarianism says that our rights are inherent and absolute. So if they're inherent and absolute, there has to be something found in nature to compel a woman to at least carry to viability whenever that may be. Uh, um, and, and then she can, um, and I use the word emancipate my, my views a little bit nuanced from, from the eviction, uh, argument there post viability, but, um, there has to be something found in nature to compel her to carry at least to viability and then emancipate her obligation because otherwise our, our rights for, for everybody cannot be absolute. They have to be contingent. What would you say is the, the primary difference then between your view of at least carrying them to viability and uh, Professor Block's view that, you know, it, it's anything before that is fine, um, which, of course, you don't agree with as well. But then do you agree with the part where he says afterwards it's OK to at post viability? I mean, uh, it is OK to evict the fetus if it will live. So do you agree with that portion of evictionism? So <laughs> evictionism is, is much broader than simply expelling the baby from, from the body. Because uh, if, we, if we follow evictionism through to its logical conclusion, and, and Walter does argue this elsewhere, um, is there is room for child abandonment. Parents can abandon their children. Uh, um, and that's something we, we didn't have an opportunity to get in, into with the debate. I believe he do, did at least sort of mention that he does think that there is some kind of obligation to you know, at least bring that baby to, I think he said like a hospital or a police station yeah. or, or something of that nature. What, what, what do you think about, you know, that, that comment of his, do you think that is sufficient or? <laughs> I don't think, well, I, you know, I had an opportunity to, to read through many of his, his articles and I wanted to give his position justice because uh, some of his critics, I don't think actually do him justice. Uh, um, and, you know, I mentioned in the debate and I couldn't get into this, um, just because of the forum, I mentioned in the debate that evictionism creates ambiguity. Uh, um, so his his position on notification is is somewhat ambiguous. Um, you know, either it's you know taking a baby to a, a church or a hospital or a police station. Um, but in his 2013 paper, he says that everything human human and medically possible must be done um, before you can evict. Well it's humanly possible to carry an unwanted fetus to viability. So um, some of his, his standards like this gentlest means possible axiom is, is ambiguous um, because it doesn't actually draw this fine line and say, that says, yes, it's okay to evict now. No, it's not okay to evict now. Or this is what you have to do, or this is what you can't do. You know, part, he's also had, um, you know, as far as notification, he's he said, well, you have to, you know, notify potential parents, right? Well, everybody in the world is a potential parent. And what what qualifies notification? Can you just do a, a quick Facebook post that says, hey, yeah. there's a, there's a so, baby coming out. Who wants yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> Craigslist post or whatever. But elsewhere, he says, well, all you have to do to notify is call an abortionist or an evictionist. Um, and, you know, uh, so... And then in his 2005 paper, one of the things that he says is if you have technology, if technology exists like this artificial womb technology, if the artificial womb technology exists, then alongside abortion, which, uh, you know, when that new technology comes in, we know it's going to be more expensive than abortion. Who foots the bill? Is she legally obligated to seek out, you know, a $10,000, I'm it's an arbitrary number, $10,000, uh, you know, um, artificial womb technology for, for her unwanted fetus or the $300 price tag for abortion. Well, he says she has, if, if in order for her to use the artificial womb technology, a pro-life organization has to foot the bill for that. Um, you know, there's some, there's some other questions about, um, you know, distance and, and time, and it creates these continuum problems. So really the evictionist view is, is ambiguous when it gets down to brass tacks. My view, my view I call emancipation. And basically it says that uh, they, the parents, but particularly the, the mother in terms of, you know, the gestational development is obligated to 
um, food and shelter. That's it. And I derive that from, from the existence of the, the placenta and umbilical cord. Um, and that you can emancipate and you can emancipate as early as viability, but you can only emancipate if you're actually finding someone to take over that obligation of food and shelter. That's really an interesting take on it, just to come at it from looking at what happens already in nature. So uh, mm-hmm. in your view, the woman in nature and the fetus in nature, the woman is, is or the, the fetus, I guess, is created having food provided to it uh, through the umbilical cord, having shelter provided to it uh, in the womb. And therefore, that, that sort of kind of nature is just kind of saying this is this is the base obligation that you have yes. um, until this child, until this fetus is old enough to, to or able enough to do this on its own. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the whole point that, you know, uh, that's the whole reason why Rothbard um, and John Locke are using natural man is because, you know, we're, we're operating off of in libertarian theory, we're operating off of natural law. And in order to do that, we have to observe nature and find these, these consistent patterns. And one of the things that I'm suggesting is that we've only looked we've only looked at natural man qua man, and we haven't looked at natural man qua woman. Um, and if we actually take a look at natural woman and the natural state of of human procreation, that actually gives us more information that we can use towards our theory of property rights and um, you know and legal justice. So yeah, I'm absolutely deriving this from from the natural state. Uh, let's dive in a little more into sort of the um, the philosophical weeds about how you could see this issue playing out um, in, in a libertarian or more anarchist society or, or what have you. So, I mean, let's say we have the society um, where we're, we're basically ha- we we try to operate on natural law. Maybe even people things have come to your point of view for the most part. What would should be done in the case of a woman in that situation that does decide to have an abortion that does decide? Well, I, even though society thinks this is wrong, I'm going to go ahead. I don't want this in my body, I'm going to go somewhere and, and have an abortion. And let's take the ambiguity out, because like you said, sometimes it's, it is hard to tell uh, if it's a mm-hmm. fetus. Let's just say this this woman, for whatever reason, I don't know, posted on Facebook about it. She's very open. She said, I have an abortion. Well, maybe, maybe she wouldn't do that if it's a crime. But uh, it's, it's clear yeah. in the case. We know we have evidence. There's video or what have you that we right. know this abortion occurred. How should a society uh, that has your point of view on abortion deal with something like that? Should they treat the woman as a criminal in that case if the woman is the one you know ordering or paying for the abortion? Right. So <clears throat> assuming that we've had our paradigm shift um, and we're in our, our libertarian legal order and we have a free market situation, um, I don't think that this actually looks very much different than, than what, what any constitutionalist would be accustomed to. So, you know, victims of a crime have to initiate a legal dispute. That's, that's just the way it works. And so the victim in this case, obviously, the, the fetus, um, can't do that. But even in the case of murder, right, the murder victim, the actual person who is killed, uh, can't initiate a dispute. So it's usually family members or, you know, somebody who knows that the crime took place. And the only reason why they know the crime took place is because they have evidence. And so they would have to have evidence in order to initiate a legal dispute. Um, and there is a presumption of innocence. Okay. Now I wanted sort of contrast this with what we have now, because I know that there's a lot of people who think that we have that now, but no thanks to the drug war, we don't really have a presumption of innocence. We have uh, law enforcement operating off of suspicion. Um, You don't need need hard evidence to be able to uh, get somebody detained for investigation of a crime. And so that that creates a problem, especially in terms of uh, considering miscarriage is suspicious. Um, so, and, and that would be, I think, your, your maybe your one of your biggest issues with some of these laws being passed in various states. I mean, you mentioned the Alabama law earlier. Is that your biggest concern with that? Is that it's it's there's not a clear definition even in there of what would be considered an abortion versus a miscarriage. And now suddenly you might have a situation where I don't know. There's investigations into whether a woman had mm-hmm. a miscarriage and her abortion, and how do you even prove that? Yeah. Well. Uh, I'm sure that it would be if we if if we took the issue seriously in such a way that we were you know respecting rights because you know in it in a situation like today where uh, law enforcement can af- act off of su- suspicion we're actually not respecting uh, the rights of individuals um, but I mean 
just some general statistics, 20% of pregnancies as they exist right now end in miscarriage. So that's 20% of the female population that could be held suspect of having an abortion. And on top of that, 47% of women who do miscarry feel guilty like they caused it. And that's another situation you don't want to put a woman in. It, a miscarriage is, is, is something that happens by accident. It happens by nature. It happens, you know, the woman isn't responsible for it. And yet she feels responsible for it. Um, and so that just, that creates a really nightmare scenario for a woman. Um, so at any rate, in a, in a libertarian legal order, let's say minarchist society, um, you would have these things like presumption of innocence, and you would have to have evidence that's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a, that's a standard of evidence that the, the legal system uses. Um, and you couldn't just use miscarriage as a suspicion. Now, I would hear, I, I can hear a lot of pro-lifers saying, well, you're going to have a lot of women who are able to get away with abortion. Well, mm -hmm. yes, that's going to happen. Um, I mean, just like in our current legal system with any crime, because of our presumption of innocence, there is some amount of people that might get away with crimes because we're protecting the rights of everybody else. Right. This is the case with almost anything. Yeah. There's um, there's a, a, a principle, and I forget what it's called, um, there's a there's a legal name for it, but it basically says that um, we should be more willing to let ten criminals go if it means keeping one innocent person from suffering, huh. um, and especially a woman who's gone through a miscarriage of no fault of her own. That's that is some psychological suffering if you're now going to have the heavy hand of the law down down on her. Um, so, you know, in the libertarian society, you would have a lot of these, these principles that we're accustomed to hearing as far as the constitution is concerned. I would say, uh, though that an anarchist legal order, uh, would, um, be preferable just because you have women now participating in, uh, in a market legal process. So one of the differences between, you know, what I'm promoting and what, uh, even just a constitutional position on pro-life is, is that, um, you know, we're now, we're now also talking about justice for women in the case of rape and sexual assault and domestic abuse. It's not just the abortion issue, it's these other issues too. And so in a polycentric legal order, an anarchist legal order, you have women participating by being consumers of legal services. And that would actually, in my opinion, optimize um, and, and, advance more quickly a legal system that justly deals with abortion and also justly deals justly deals with crimes against women but it could be it, it could be achieved in a minarchist situation as well all right well now we have to address the people that will say well that sounds all all well and good in your mythical mythical minarchist anarchist society what about <laughs> now how do you address this now how would you kind of put your pro-life view into our current legal system right so you know, our current situation is interesting because um, we're sort of in this, this, it's almost like a Cold War, right? You have some states which are advancing uh, pro-abortion legislation. You have some st states that are advancing anti-abortion legislation. And we're sort of... It's like a giant so pissing match to see who can out uh, out pro yes. or out choice or life of the other one. Right. We're we're trying to figure out. We're, we're, we've basically given up on a dialogue between both sides, and so we're trying to. There's a race to see who can criminalize the other side first. So, um, and that's like the definition of a cold war. Um, now, as a libertarian, um, I believe that good ideas don't require force. Right. They do require persuasion, and so. Um, my view, my view looks at the divide between pro-choice and pro-life, not as enemies, but as a natural division of labor, labor. So you have a segment of the population who is motivated to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And then you have a segment of the, of the pop population who's motivated to um, provide life affirming solutions when unwanted pregnancies occur. Um, and so both of those segments of the population need a freed market in order to optimize and achieve options in those cases. So, you know, preventing conception isn't just, um, you know, uh, increasing technology of contraception, although we do need that. Um, but, you know, uh, any, anything in the market that actually supports 
um, or allows women to, and people generally speaking, to, to live and take care of themselves, to feed themselves, provide shelter for themselves, provide their own self-defense. All of those things are going to contribute to preventing unwanted pregnancies. Um, and life-affirming technology uh, for when unwanted pregnancies occur, right, that's going to be motivated by um, or it needs to be motivated by recognition of both the rights of women and the rights of the offspring. But both sides need the freed market to do this. And that's where uh, the paradigm shift is going to occur is from the ground up, not from the top down. Um, so in my view, you don't actually have to be persuaded right here and right now to be pro-life. All we need to do is focus on, on freeing up the market. And as we free up the market, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, as we free up the market, the, the proof will be in the pudding and women being able to take care of themselves. There's actually, um, they, they do this study quite frequently, um, comparing abortion rates during the different administrations. And under a conservative Republican administration, abortion rates go up. And they've noticed that abortion, that, that correlates with welfare rates going down. And then the Democrats get into office and abortion rates go down, but welfare rates go up. Now, Democrats use this as a defense for welfare. I would say if you, if you understand what's going on in that, that women who are on welfare feel like their most basic needs are met, they feel like they can carry an unwanted fetus. Um, at least to term. So your real solution to this problem is, as it is with almost every other libertarian issue for most of us, is the free market, is to get to yes. a more libertarian anarchist society because you think naturally that will result in, in much less abortions. And in the cases that are remaining where abortions are more clear, you would treat those more as, as a criminal case. Yeah, I would treat those. Yeah. Or the, the, or the market word, I, I suppose. Yeah, that, that I think would come. You know, I think, I, I, I think just... The evolution of the market and the fact that innovation is going to create better technology that is that that doesn't employ violence and things like that. What I see happening is any of these any of these solutions brought by either the uh, either of these segments of the population, either those trying to prevent unwanted pregnancy or those trying to provide life affirming solutions, both of those segments are going to create solutions that are actually cheaper, safer, um, and just a better alternative from abortion. And so that, I think, will actually naturally peter out. You will still have women who feel stuck in their situation and they've been persuaded that an abortion is the only way to go and they manage to get a hold of, you know, um, an abortion pill from a, a friend who's a doctor. You know, those are the ones that will slip through the cracks and we, we either need to get them persuaded that... Uh, the market can provide for them, or we have to s deal with the situation of of an actual crime. I often think to myself, man, if the if the people that are you know firmly pro life that put so much time and energy into the political end of thing, into supporting politicians, into supporting uh, pro life uh, organizations, uh, into holding up signs on the street, if all mm -hmm. that energy just went into like I don't know maybe just paying women to have to, to, to <laughs> take a child to, you know, into viability and then paying for that adoption or just focusing yeah. on the actual literal ways you could keep that fetus alive and incentivize the woman to do so as opposed to right. just saying, ban this, ban this, ban this, put all our money towards politicians for it. Well, and this is, this is one of my biggest frustrations with, with a conservative pro-life view. Um, and my first, my first, my very first episode on abortion, which was gosh, over a year ago, um, it's called uh, How the Pro-Life Movement is Aborting a Pro-Life Era. And um, I, I looked at a study that was done of the, the pro-life movement. And this woman noticed, uh, the, the woman doing the study, um, her name is uh, Laura Hussey from the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Um, and she, she talks about how the pro-life movement is fragmented. You have the political pro-lifers who think their, their methods and solutions um, or ideas will be the solution to the problem. You have the people who um, promote crisis pregnancy centers who are both liberal and conservative. Uh, that's the least politically charged aspect of the, of the pro-life movement. You have the more uh, Catholic traditional 
pro-lifers out there who are just trying to regulate the abortion industry. And they're all, they're all disjointed. They're not actually working together and they all vilify each other. And it's, it's, it all comes from this sense of moral outrage. And so the political people are all thinking, well, if we just pass a law, we're going to change this behavior. And then you have the, the people who are trying to regulate the in- industry saying, if we just reduce the supply, you know, then people and then, then women won't have access to abortion. Um, and as libertarians, we know you have to consider demand, right? Uh, and we don't want to create a black market for abortion. And that is an entirely possible situation. Um, so at any rate, the, the conservative pro-life movement is very fragmented, the, but the most successful aspect of it are the crisis pregnancy centers who provide resources to women in crisis pregnancy situations. One more thing I want to circle back to um, is the discussion of, you know, how you mentioned how, you know, the rapist is often lost in this conversation, the rapist himself. So how would you see, um, and I guess we'll have to, we can only really address a case where we know who the rapist is, because if you don't, Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you possibly go after them? But uh, in cases where you know who the rapist is, do you, would you say, you know, whether the current or uh, the mythical uh, hypothetical libertarian (laughs) society, would you say the rapist should be held accountable to, I don't know, like, you know, pay for all the medical bills and pay for the child? to I don't know how, how how far would you take that should he pay for the kid to go to college like how, how far does the rapist have to go and obviously on top of that they should have to owe the mother for you know the actual violent act and all right. this other stuff yeah so um when I get this when I get my argument written out I'm gonna actually be able to line to to line all of this up but um yeah so the the rapist is on the hook for the you know just the violent crime itself he's on the hook for any consequence uh, any intended and unintended consequences as a result. So that includes the pregnancy. Um, He would be on the hook for, um, for any emancipation process, right? So adoption or, you know, trying to, to uh, use artificial womb technology or, or what have you. And would Um, you leave that up to the woman, which of those to decide that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If she, if she chooses to, to, um, to keep the child, um, then he's on the hook to pay her, uh, support for, for that. He would be on the hook for the cost, uh, so more like something like along, along the lines of child support, that would be due, that would be due to the child. If he's broke, should, does he have to basically be an indentured servant? Obviously, uh, he wouldn't want a Seinfeld situation where he's her butler because he probably, she probably doesn't want him in his house at that point, but uh, would he have to basically right. just work this off for his life, you know, in order to even be allowed in society? Yeah. Well, Bob Murphy, I think, has has spoken a lot about situations where mm-hmm. you know a, a, a criminal can't pay pay restitution for yeah. his crime, and so there's you know there's solutions to that. Uh, the interesting thing, so so the, the 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 type of law that would be in play in this situation is tort law, and what's interesting about tort law is that um, unlike legislative law, tort law does actually have a level of deterrence. Um, because you can actually see, oh, this is the cost of my crime. This isn't worth it if I get caught. Um, so in, in my view, rape would actually be uh, not only the worst crime that you could commit against another person, but it would be the most costly in terms of restitution. Um, and as far as not being able to find the rapist, um, this is an interesting fact. Uh, most rapes, for most women occur between uh, between intimate relationships, either family or friends or actual romantic partners. Right. People with aren't the, usually just snatched out of in, in an alley out of, out of nowhere. Right. With the exception of one uh, demographic, and that is Native American women, 40% of rapes that occur against Native American women are from unknown assailants, and they don't wow. know why. That is shocking. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, of unknown assailants, um, first of all, I think technology would help with that. We have, uh, you know, facial recognition technology, which I know is controversial, um, but that could be used to identify unknown assailants. But also we have situations of, of property rights violations where we have, solu- you know, where we don't know who the criminal is and we have means of, of providing for that. And that's insurance. You know, I've been, I've had my car broken into about five times ever since I got my driver's license. And each time I didn't know who the criminal was, but I was able to call up my insurance company and say, Hey, uh, this crime occurred. And I was provided, you know, some, some sort of 
I mean, it's not restitution, but recompense for that. So perhaps in the the Bob Murphy uh, sort of insurance based uh, anarcho society, that just I guess maybe rape insurance would just be part of what everyone has as a part of you know, sure. the, the normal set of insurances everybody would be, but he's subscribing to. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. One more thing I want to address in this issue is um, uh, the concept of uh, which Walter Brock Block brought up is uh, if if there's a situation which of course is rare but does happen where the woman's life is in danger and um, you know the, the giving birth to the the child will create a situation um, where where it will be a danger to the mother. Um, would you? How would you view that through the same prism? I guess. Well, in that case, um, you know, I if it's if it's threatening the actual life of the mother then and abortion is the only way to go then yes of course that's you you have to save the life that can be saved now even, even within that you would probably argue but they should do everything they can to save the, the baby yes at the same time yeah there's so there's an, there's a few interesting things first of all they know medically speaking we know when a pregnancy is going to be life-threatening before major development occurs and that's if it's going to be an ectopic pregnancy or not there are some situations um post viability or sort of that occur close to viability where we find out oh this this pregnancy is is threatening the health or life of the mother the goal at that point is to just get that fetus to viability as close to viability as possible and then deliver it early and then do everything possible to help it live. Um, there are some situations where they determine that the fetus, um, you know, doesn't actually have a chance at life. And so they might deliver the, the fetus early and just allow the parents to have what little time they have with the baby. That's certainly a possibility. Um, so, but if there's an actual threat to the woman's life, then, and, and that is the absolute only option, then, then, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that that's, uh, consistent with the non-aggression principle. Um, but if our motivations are to be life affirming rather than to default to abortion, which a lot of doctors do in order to save them from malpractice suits. I don't know if you know this, but there are, you can actually charge a doctor with a wrongful birth. Um, yeah, you can charge a doctor with, with a wrongful birth. And so a lot mind blowing. Yeah. Um, so like if a doctor doesn't want to get charged with a wrongful birth and he sees that there's, you know, there might be some issues with the pregnancy, he'll go ahead and recommend abortion, even if it's not actually warranted. Um, so at any rate, sort of our system is, is set up to default to abortion rather than being life affirming. Okay, well, I, I really appreciate anyone that has unique perspectives on things, and you have a very, very unique perspective on abortion. One that you know, I, I first heard you, I think, talk about this on on Pete Raymond's show, uh, Pete Quinone's show, uh, Free Man Beyond the Wall, uh, a few months ago. So, and, and since then, I've really uh, been following what you've been doing here. So, uh, this is something I've wanted to do for a while. So, I was really glad we were able to make this work. Uh, I also want to talk to you about a little bit about the debate itself, because uh, obviously, you're, you're, I don't know if you have you ever debated this topic before. You had debated uh, Walter in a, in a formal setting. I, I've I've never had a formal debate before. That was my first one ever. Any debate ever. <laughs> In fact, so you, you decided to start with like the biggest heavyweight you could possibly find, right? No, it's it's interesting the way it turned out. So I went on on Pete's show, and a few days later, Pete's calling me up, and he's like, "Hey, do you know who Gene Epstein is?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, should I?" <laughs> and so at any rate, he explained to me that that uh, Gene listens to his his podcast and and had heard me and he had wanted somebody to debate Walter they wanted a woman uh, um to to debate Walter and they wanted you know a they wanted a, a different take on it than just you know your t- typical rehashed pro life stuff and i think i i think what's great about the debate between Walter and i is that it's a, legit, a legitimate debate we're both arguing on Rothbardian terms in most mm-hmm. abortion debates, you're, you know, both sides coming are coming from total different philosophical yeah, outlooks, right? Yeah. And so, of course, you're not going to have a real debate in that. Were you <laughs> nervous going in <laughs> up, against, <laughs> up against Walter Block? So I've had stage Luckily, he's a very nice guy. So it's not he's, that scary. Walter is a sweetheart. Um, mm-hmm. I've had stage fright most of my life. So I had to actually really practice and prepare for the debate. Um, and, uh, there was, there's an organization here, uh, called Americans for Prosperity, and they had a little, uh, Toastmasters style, uh, speech practice. And so I did that quite a bit leading up to the debate. Um, 
But when I got there, I wasn't nervous. I felt like I knew my stuff. Um, everybody there was uh, super wel- welcoming and um, just wonderful, warming, uh, cordial. And Walter was a sweetheart. In fact, <laughs> we we had this conversation before before we went on went out on stage, and um, you know he he said. I, I haven't actually heard your position. You you got to the end of your one podcast and you said that there was more to come and there was no more. Like you didn't publish anything else. <laughs> and I said, well, I took three months just reading through your stuff and and <laughs> some of the critics how long it would take to get through his writing on the, He's on got it. <laughs> yeah, he's got a ton of stuff. And actually one of the things that I that I noticed, I, I read Wyszynski's paper and Sean Parr's paper. Uh, criticizing the evictionist view, and one thing that I that I learned just from reading those perspectives was that they didn't quite get Walter correct. They didn't get his position correct, and I and I I wanted to give Walter justice, uh, um, and so at any rate, <laughs> he forgave me for not putting anything else in, out and letting him be a little more prepared. Um, but even before we got on stage, so our seats were were right off stage. And uh, he's, I can tell he's always in, in teacher mode. And so he said to me, he said, now this is what I do with my students. I have them go out to the podium and just look at the audience and get a sense for the audience so that you can be comfortable. And he said, that's what I'm going to do right now. You mean so, before the debate even takes place? Yeah, this was before the debate. So, uh, so he goes out on stage and then, and he looks out and everybody's, you know, talking and nobody's paying any attention and he comes to sit back down. And I was like, all right, I'll do this. And so I went out and I stood behind the podium and I looked out and everybody got quiet. <laughs> and I Is was he like, playing a trick okay. on you? Did he put, did he put the whole audience up to this? <laughs> right. So, but um, no, it was, it was, it was an absolutely wonderful experience. Walter Block is a sweetheart. Um, and, uh, the the audience was very engaged and interested. There was no hecklers. There was absolutely no tension, which is strange for an abortion for, debate. For one of the most contentious topics uh, known to man. Yeah. So, um, you know, Gene did a really great job moderating um, and just everybody there is doing a great job and it was a wonderful experience. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and uh, you know break down your position here. Uh, before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to plug away on everything you've got going on at Mere Liberty, at the Dare to Think podcast. Uh, feel free to just plug away on the whole thing. Sure. So again, my website is mereliberty.com. My podcast is called Dare to Think. Um, and you can find that all at, at mereliberty.com. Uh, I have articles. I'm also a contributor at the Libertarian Christian Institute. Um, I do have a uh, Patreon-style membership page, which is mereliberty.com slash membership. And basically, the things that I'm going to be working on from here on out is, one, writing up uh, a formal argument um, on my position and getting that submitted to to a journal of some kind. But the other... um, the other project that I'm working on is a web course on identity, and it's really borrowing from this idea of self-ownership. Um, and it's it's geared towards women in particular, but it would be beneficial to anybody. Um, but those are the things that I'm working on. And I'm entirely listener and reader supported. So if you want to support me, I'd greatly appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Carrie Baldwin, thank you so much again for joining us today. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you, Mark. All right, my Liberty Kitty Cats, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Carrie Baldwin. A very, very unique take on this abortion debate, which will probably never, ever end as long as libertarianism or politics or any of this stuff is discussed. But I do always appreciate new perspectives, and Carrie certainly does provide one on the abortion issue. And speaking of new perspectives, boy, I sure am excited to hear if Brian McWilliams has any new perspectives. Now that he is a new father, congratulations to Brian McWilliams. Beautiful baby girl was just born last week, Logan James McWilliams. He probably should have been the first one to tell you this, but uh, <laughs> I guess I guess I'm beating him to it on the podcast. He's already posted on social media, so it's okay. So congratulations to Brian. Uh, he should be back with you this coming Wednesday 
on Electric Liberty Land. Let's see how the show changes with Brian as a father. Will he be cursing less? Will he remember names uh, differently, better? I don't know. I have no idea. It's going to be fun for us all to find out together. So tune into Electric Liberty Land this Wednesday. And of course, wrap up your week on Friday, every single Friday, with John Odermatt's hard-hitting and incredibly inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You got to hit that subscribe button, friends, no matter where you listen to us, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, I listen on Overcast myself. You got to hit that subscribe button because you get three unique shows three days a week because this is the gosh darned greatest libertarian variety show on earth here on Lions of Liberty. And you get it all for the price of one. Three shows for the price of one. That price is free unless, of course, you are one of our supporters on Patreon. You can find our Patreon. You can join our Lions of Liberty Pride at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We got levels from everybody ranging from two bucks a month to hop on our live streams and get in our secret Facebook group all the way up to $100 a month where you get your very own ad on this program once per week. So there is a full range of possibilities. We even just debuted our Nittany level, the $50 a month tier, where you can eventually suggest a topic for the show, like we did right here last week when we dug into the mysterious sinking of the uh, Hawaiian Super Fairy. Of course, that is a proverbial sinking. You would know that if you went back and listened to last episode. So I suggest you don't. I suggest you do that if you haven't already. If you're a new fan, maybe you're coming over from the Reason program, welcome. Glad to have you here. You want some CBD? <laughs> because, of course, don't forget we have a new sponsor at NorthSpokaneCBD.com. Again, use that discount code LIONS to get 25% off. That deal is only going to last through February, and they already have amazing prices and free shipping nationwide over $50. So you really can't beat this. Head over there now, NorthSpokaneCBD.com. I'm being a relentless shill, but that's because we are trying to raise some money. Not just through our Patreon, but through these sponsors, because we are headed to the LNC in Austin this coming May. And if we get to this mark that we have set on Patreon, $1,500 a month, we're going to bring along a professional videographer to film our whole experience, capture it, turn a little something into it, do a bunch of video interviews. We just got to get a little bit over this hump. So please do check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Guys, I have rambled and rambled enough. Until next time, until this Wednesday. With the new father, Brian McWilliams, on Electric Liberty Land, I wish you adieu, and of course, I beg you to live long and live free.